are listening to a podcast from The National. The United States is now the only country in the world to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. President Donald Trump made the announcement in a speech on Wednesday last week, prompting a backlash not only from regional leaders, but from politicians across the world. Unsurprisingly, the move also sparked an angry reaction from Palestinian officials who have said the US can no longer broker any peace process, as well as from ordinary Palestinians. Street protests are still rumbling on in the West Bank and Gaza, and it is currently unclear whether these will gradually dwindle or escalate. Either way, the move by Mr. Trump is sure to have ramifications in the region for many years to come. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Laura McKenzie. Later in the show, we'll be discussing the UN-brokered Syria peace talks in Geneva, as well as the UAE's growing ambitions to reach outer space. But first, we go to Jerusalem, where Ben Linfield has been following the reaction to the US announcement last week for The National. So, Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Uh, First off, can you tell us what the atmosphere has been like on the streets of Jerusalem and the West Bank since Donald Trump's recognition of the holy city as Israel's capital last week? Sure. Uh, Let's start with West Jerusalem, the Jewish neighborhoods in West Jerusalem. Uh, It's completely normal, business as usual atmosphere. You would not know that such a momentous move had been made. People are just going around their business, going to the cafes, going to work. In East Jerusalem, I was in the Old City on Friday for the Friday prayers, and there was a great deal of anger. If you interviewed people, they they voiced a lot of anger. But uh, demonstrations were small, actually. And uh, so there's tension in the air. And in the West Bank cities, you have to distinguish between the city centers and the points of friction with the Israeli army and the outlying parts of the cities. The city centers are, are quiet and things appear to be normal. But if you go out to friction points uh, where there's contact with Israeli soldiers, There have been a lot of uh, demonstrations and exchanges, stone throwing, soldiers firing back rubber-coated metal bullets, sometimes live fire. And so it's tense at these friction points. In Bethlehem, there have also been skirmishes at the entrance to Bethlehem. But inside the city center, it's been quiet and I would say uh, normal atmosphere, except they turned off the lights for the Christmas tree in a sign of protest against Trump. And even though protests by Palestinians have kept rumbling on since the announcement last week, they've so far been relatively muted um, if you compare them to to protests in, in previous years. Is there any sign that they could escalate or do you anticipate that they'll just gradually dwindle? Well, it depends very much if there are fatalities and uh, a large number of fatalities, because uh, in past experience has shown that if the Israeli army responds in a way that produces fatalities, that creates a cycle in which people are even angrier, there are more protests, and then there are more 
fatalities. And, you know, that's what we saw at the start of the second intifada. Um, so one can't rule out a dynamic of escalation if, if there are more Palestinian fatalities. And in a story you wrote, you wrote for us this week, you described Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas as the big loser um, of the U.S. move last week. Can you tell us more about this? Yeah, I think he's the big loser because for the last decade, he's bet all of his chips on a U.S. brokered negotiating process. His idea was that the U.S. would d deliver Israeli concessions that would enable the establishment of an independent Palestinian state with its capital as Jerusalem. And even, you know, people would, would make jokes about him, about how he thought that negotiations is the only possible strategy. Um, there's a Palestinian analyst in Ramallah, Hani Masri, who likes to tell the story of a conversation he had with Abbas in which he asked Abbas, you know, your strategy is negotiations. What happens if the negotiation strategy doesn't work? And according to Hani Masri, he responded, well, we'll just negotiate some more. Uh, and now with the Trump move, the negotiating option based on American mediator and America delivering Israeli concessions is a dead option right now. So Abbas doesn't have an agenda. At the same time, Abbas also was hoping that there would be changes in the dynamics of Israeli politics and that the left could come to power in Israel and agreed to a two-state peace solution. Uh, Abbas and other Palestinian leaders hoped that there would emerge a new Israeli Yitzhak Rabin, who was their partner in, in the Oslo process. And if you look at the Israeli politics, things are just going more and more to the right. And in fact, the Israeli political reactions to Trump's move in, in recognizing Jerusalem were overwhelmingly supportive, jubilant, and one small party, the Meretz party, one small party on the Israeli left was critical. So that's another thing, you know, making Abbas look like a loser. He certainly can't count on Israeli politics changing in the direction he would like at this point. So is there anything that Abbas and other Palestinian officials can do now, do you think, to improve their negotiating position? That's a big and very difficult question. It doesn't look like they have very good options. Abbas's aides are talking about going for a multilateral strategy in which they would have countries other than the United States States brokering uh, peace negotiations, be, and France has been bandied about as a possibility, Russia as a possibility, even talk of China being involved. But this is a strategy that looks to me like it won't ever get off the ground 
for the simple reason that Israel won't accept it. So out of the countries you just mentioned, which one do you think would be the most viable replacement to the U.S. as the main broker in, in any peace process? Well, I think if the EU as a whole emerged, it it could um, have some impact. But I don't really think any of those possibilities can really replace the U.S. because Israel will only negotiate in an American-sponsored peace process. It, it won't accept the others as mediator. And Israel feels it can defy the will of the international community because it has the wholehearted backing of the Trump administration. So I think it's a non-starter. And the Jordanian parliament is currently reviewing all agreements between Amman and Israel, including the 1994 peace treaty. How far do you think the regional backlash against Israel could grow? Well, Jordan, in a way, is the most sensitive country because it is custodian of the holy places in Jerusalem, according to signed agreements with Israel. And it also has a majority Palestinian population. And we've seen that the population has been very moved and angry by, by Trump's move. Um, keep in mind that relations between Israel and Jordan were at a low point even before this happened. Um, over the summer, there was an incident during the uh, Al-Aqsa protests there was an incident at the Israeli embassy in Amman in which an embassy guard was attacked by one individual. I don't know if it was with a screwdriver or some other instrument. And he shot that individual as well as a bystander. And then he was welcomed in Israel. He was welcomed back as a hero by Prime Minister Netanyahu. And uh, the Jordanians were appalled to see what they view as a murderer being welcomed as a hero. And since then, Israel's embassy in Amman has been closed. Now, the Jordanian parliamentarians are calling for uh, the abrogation of the peace treaty, which they think that Israel has already violated. So the king has to move very sensitively. He's in a very delicate position. As for other Arab countries, the issue is that uh, they are very dependent on good ties with the Trump administration. Um, Egypt is dependent on U.S. aid and needs American help as it combats Islamic State and other terrorism. The Saudis want U.S. backing against Iran. And so these governments aren't going to really take things too far unless we see public opinion being outraged in a sustained manner. And as for Israel, what can we expect now from the Israeli government in terms of its approach to the Palestinians? From Israel, you can expect 
open season on settlements and land confiscations. In Jerusalem, you can expect house demolitions. All the restraints are off. It's not as if the United States really restrained Israeli actions very much in the past, but now there's not even a premise and there's not even verbal condemnation. Netanyahu thinks that he has Trump's backing, not only in Jerusalem, but to consolidate a permanent hold on most of the West Bank. And the Palestinians are in a very weak, exposed and vulnerable position. And within Israel, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, the left wing in Israel is like in a critically wounded, dying state, and uh, they're not going to be able to restrain the government either. Syria peace talks are ongoing in the Swiss city of Geneva, where UN mediators are meeting with the Syrian opposition and the regime of President Bashar al-Assad. The National's foreign reporter, Mina Aldrubi, joins us to discuss the talks. Mina, you were in Geneva for the start of the talks on November 28th. Can you give us a quick roundup of what's happened so far? Absolutely. The eighth round of UN-brokered negotiations kicked off on November the 28th in Geneva without regime representatives present. The discussions um, were aimed at focusing on post-war constitutional reforms as well as elections. Now, negotiators of the Syrian regime arrived in Geneva a day late on the 29th of November and said that they delayed their planned departure for the talks because of the opposition's insistence that Syrian President Bashar al-Assad should step down. Now, this is a stance that prompted UN mediator Stefan de Mistura to warn both sides that he would judge this week whether any party was seeking to sabotage the process. Now, during the first week of the talks, Mr. de Mistura shuttled between the two sides. Um, and by the end of it, he announced uh, on Friday, he announced um, last Friday, he announced a short break. So the talks resumed last Tuesday without the regime's representatives present. The unified opposition delegation met with UN officials um, on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday alone. Now, headed by Syria's UN ambassador Bashar al-Jafari, the regime delegation showed up in Geneva five days late and are set to stay until December the 15th when the talks are supposed to be um, ending. So they've missed out on several days of talks after arriving to the Swiss city late and they've left in protest on December the 2nd over the opposition's insistence on the absence of Mr. Bashar al-Assad from any future transition period. So basically, the the um, the Syrian governmental delegations kept on claiming that there was no point on talking to the opposition that demanded Mr. Um, al-Assad's withdrawal. So there's now just a couple of days remaining before the talks end on the 15th, as you mentioned. Is there any reason at all to hope for a last-minute win for mediators? The Syrian opposition claims that the government delegation to the Geneva peace talks is coming up with new conditions which are making it difficult to move forward. The opposition spokesperson, Yahya al-Aradi, said on Tuesday that Damascus, that the the Damascus delegation told Mr. Dimistura that they won't be negotiating directly with the opposition. He said that Dimistura told them about the government's stance. 
And Mr. Aradi said that the opposition's delegates consider this to be a precondition. And there was no immediate response from governmental team in Switzerland. So really, the only hope we have now for negotiations to go ahead would be in the Russian resort city of Sochi. So in recent months, as the US has taken a backseat in the Syrian peace process, Russia, which is the main backer of the Syrian regime, has increasingly stepped in to take the lead. But do you think Moscow has enough leverage with the Syrian government to force a compromise between the two sides? Russia has been urged by the Syrian opposition to salvage the UN's peace talks in Geneva this week by persuading the Syrian government delegation to begin direct face-to-face discussions. Basma Qadami, a leading member of the Syrian opposition negotiation team, urged the Russians to show that they wanted to capitalize on the end of their military operations in Syria by building a lasting peace. Mrs. Qadmani said the opposition was not seeking Bashar al-Assad's removal from office as a precondition for talks, but that his departure remained its objective. She said that she could not see how Assad, how Mr. al-Assad could ever be regarded as a legitimate candidate in fresh presidential elections overseen by the United Nations. In a sign that Syria is under some political pressure from Moscow, the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said the parties must begin direct talks on the issues of new constitution and preparations for elections. So it's still not clear whether Vladimir Putin, the Russian uh, president, has underlined the message when he briefly visited Syria on Monday for a meeting with Bashar al-Assad, where he claimed a military victory and announced a partial troop uh, drawback. Also, many Western uh, diplomats are skeptical that Putin is willing to put pressure on on Bashar al-Assad to start serious talks. And you mentioned the Russian city of Sochi uh, earlier, which is where a parallel peace initiative was launched by Russia, along with fellow regime ally Iran and rebel backer Turkey. Do you think this peace, peace initiative is where the real progress is going to be made rather than through UN broker talks in future? Yes, I I do think so. I mean, Russia continues to discuss with the Turkish president Recep Tayyip Erdogan and the Iranian president Hassan Rouhani um, an additional and possibly separate peace talk, peace process to that of the United Nations, which is seen in the um, Russian resorts, uh, the Russian Black Sea resort of Sochi. Um, And again, his aides on Monday, they raised the idea of a Syrian Congress on on a national dialogue. And Russian officials have suggested that Sochi talks might lead to a more representative opposition rather than a negotiating team um, sent to, to Geneva. Now, Ms. Khodmani also said that if Sochi is to support the UN process, it can actually be considered. But there is absolutely no clarity on what the Russians want to achieve. And I quote, this is what she said, as a substitute for the UN, it is a non-starter for us and we will not consider that in any shape or form. So there is some hope that Sochi talks that are sort of um, uh, backed by Iran, Russia and Turkey might actually shed some light um, at, the end of, at the end of the tunnel to finding some kind of a political um, solution to the, to, the, to the crisis on the ground. And earlier this week, as you also mentioned, um, the Russian President Vladimir Putin announced that he was ordering the withdrawal of a significant part Uh, that's in quotes there, of Russian forces in Syria. And a number of troops have already returned home. But do you think this is merely a token gesture, as the US has been suggesting, or is it a real attempt by Moscow to begin reducing its dominant role in the Syrian war? 
Well, while I was in Geneva, a European diplomat told me on the sidelines of the talks that it is helpful and not coincidental that the Russians have engaged uh, in these peace talks, especially in pushing the regime to come to Geneva um, after they showed up a day late and for them to be pushing for political peace process and also for the Syrian opposition to sort of call for Russia's help in and exerting pressure on the uh, the regime representatives. And also, I'd like to quote, uh, the, the European diplomat told me that we'd like to see more of it. We'd like to see the Russians work together with the P5 to come up with the parameters to the crisis. So I guess what Moscow is trying to do here is be become the new peacemaker in the region, let's say, in quotes, um, to ensure that, that it rebuilds its torn image and reputation in the Middle East. An expert told me that Russia wants to get rid of any competitors in Syria in order to secure its diminished place in the region and to restore its influence as a world-class power in the Middle East and North Africa. Lastly, we hear from Salim Almari, Assistant Director General of the Mohammed bin Rashid Space Center in Dubai. Mr. Almari, who is managing the UAE's astronaut program, spoke to our reporter James Langton about the recruitment process for the country's first ever astronauts and what the Emirates' space ambitions look like. Uh, what does the first UAE astronaut look like? That's a good question. So uh, I would expect that you know, the, the main characteristics of this person would be that they have well-rounded uh, skills and capabilities. They would have to be a good leader and a good uh, follower. So when we say good followership, you know, they're able to uh, lead, but at the same time take, um, you know, leadership advice or at least uh, orders from others because you really have to work uh, as a team. Uh, they should have some very good skills in STEM educated uh, fields. So they have a good STEM education. Um, they would also have to have uh, some good mechanical hand skills, able to handle tools. Uh, they would be able to uh, speak in public in a very good manner. They should be able to do uh, presentations to large groups of people. Uh, they would be able. They would have to go to schools and inspire youth. So there's a lot that these astronauts would have to do. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it's interesting because you've actually what you've just said exactly is when I interviewed the uh, head of astronaut training at uh, at, um, in, at uh, Boeing. I see, okay. And he said exactly what you've just said. That's good then, we're on the same page. Um, <laughs> male or female, doesn't matter? Uh, for us, no, it doesn't matter. I think, you know, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed mentioned in uh, one of the tweets that uh, for us, uh, basically, we will take the most uh, suitable and the most able and capable. So right. we're looking at skill set, we're not looking at age, and we're not looking at gender. We're looking at the most suitable to conduct these missions and represent the United Arab Emirates. Right. Let's let's talk about the training next. Um, I don't know if you've made any decisions yet or whether you're reaching out. Um, I'm assuming you will go to. I mean, there are a lot of options, or there will be a lot of options in the next two years for getting back into space. Um, are you leaning in any particular direction at this stage? I think, you know, what, what I'd like to start with is say that, you know, we've just opened up our, our uh, uh, application process and that's going to be two months. So from the 6th of December, two months will open the application process to receive all applicant applications uh, for the, for the uh, astronaut program. Mm -hmm. In the first week, we've received about a thousand initial applicants. So that's a very nice number that we've had. 
the next stage after that would be for us to go through a uh, basically assessment and selection process right. and we're looking at about 10 months uh, so that we'd be able to have chosen our astronauts by the third or the end of the year basically the fourth right. quarter of the year after that obviously we'll go into what you just mentioned which is the training so right. uh, probably a year of basic training a couple of years a year and a half maybe of uh, mission specific training depending on the option of what flight you choose you'd have yeah. some more training have we chosen uh, our training partners yet no we have not we're looking at all of the different options so there are space agencies there are private companies that do these things and we're looking mm -hmm. at which option will be suitable for us as you know we're gonna have an astronaut corps so uh, that's astronauts for the next 20, 30 years and not all of these four astronauts will fly on the first flight. Right. So we might choose different training partners for different astronauts. So we're really trying to look at, you know, uh, trying to get the best program for the United Arab Emirates. Yeah, I guess that sort of starts to get into my next question, which is in this initial stage, will they essentially be uh, sitting in the capsule while others go up there and then essentially conduct scientific missions. I'm assuming you know, the destination is the ISS. Uh, the idea is obviously definitely to go to the ISS. And, you know, the way we look at it is we have, uh, you know, the UAE has stated that Mars is an objective for right. us as well. So we've got the Emirates Mars mission, we've got the Emirates Science City, the Mars Science City, yeah. and we've got the Mars 2117 initiative. So getting humans to Mars and being a part of that, pro uh, that process is an objective for the United Arab Emirates. So our, uh, this is also another step in that objective. So you need to have an astronaut corps. That astronaut corps is gonna be conducting experiments that are related to living uh, or long life in space. So right. there'll be experiments that'll be conducted here on the ground in our Mars Science City. And we, we look at taking those experiments into the ISS and being part of you know, the, uh, you know, continuing some of the science and interesting experiments that the other space players have been doing. So that will be your thrust. Your th the thrust is to prepare for Mars, whatever form that takes. Yes, and so the experimentation on the ISS will reflect that. We reflect, you know, getting humans to spend uh, longer t time in space. So long-term human space flight uh, duration, basically. Right. Uh, this is obviously all very expensive. Uh, it sounds like something you would partner in rather than be the sole party. Uh, is that? How, I mean, how do you see? How do you see the progress of the Space Corps and the, the UAE's role in space over the next how long maybe, but I mean, uh, initially you go to the ISS, you spend three months, six months, whatever, up there doing experiments. Uh, how does it move beyond that? I think, I mean, you're definitely right. I mean, space, obviously, this is why, uh, you know, the cost of space is what is driving a lot of this uh, international cooperation. And I think the UAE, I always say this, the UAE really has a unique uh, position today. Because we've started uh, relatively new, we're able to do things in a quite uh, a unique and a different way to, to uh, bring down the costs. And also, uh, we are open to partner with all countries. So all of our programs from Dubai Sat 1, Dubai Sat 2, were international partnerships with Korea. Mm -hmm. With the Mars mission, we're working with entities in the United States. Uh, with this program, we envisage working with all of the ISS partners. So international partnership is a key to our survival, and I right. think the survival of other space countries. Now, uh, to answer the second part of your question, which was uh, what comes afterwards, the idea for us is, you know, we don't want to have this one mission up, one mission down, and that's it. Right. You know, our, our, our space ambitions stop which is what we've seen actually in many different countries. So the, the reason we're choosing four, and we're saying that this is an astronaut core, is that yes, we'll have that first mission, 
and every mission after that we will build up on it uh, and you know I think uh, now is the, one of the most exciting times to be in space if you look at what's happening with the uh, private space players you've got SpaceX you've got Boeing all of these entities now are you know uh, providing solutions that in the 2020s will give access to space in a different way that didn't exist that doesn't exist today as well right. so uh, for us this is really the right time to be uh, an active player in human spaceflight. So for example you might like to see if there's a series of missions that return to the moon you maybe envisage a UA astronaut being part of that mission. I mean you know uh, not committing you to anything. Not, uh, definitely I mean, <laughs> I mean if you've got an active uh, astronaut core and you're you know you've sent astronauts into space and you're part of the global human spaceflight uh, exploration community definitely you know you're always looking at what uh, where we can contribute and the UAE uh, is also uh, you know a member of uh, uh, committees that are setting the global exploration roadmap yeah. for the next 20 years we're part of those committees today and you know being part of committees that set that global exploration roadmap means that you can be an active player in those roadmaps and that's what we envisage. Thanks so much to Salim Almari, Ben Linfield, Mina Aldrubi, and James Langton. Thanks also to the show's producer, Kevin Jeffers. You can find this and all of The National's other podcasts on Apple's podcast app or wherever else you get your podcasts. And of course, on thenational.ae. I've been your host, Laura McKenzie. Thank you for listening and goodbye for this week. <laughs>